2016's Rogue One gives us a story of sacrifice and selflessness. In this episode, we're choosing three other themes to explore within the story. Welcome to Sky Talkers. Here are your hosts, Charlotte and Caitlin. Hello, and welcome to Sky Talkers. I'm your host, Charlotte. Hey, everyone. I'm your other host, Caitlin, and welcome to a proper episode of Sky Talkers. <laughs> <laughs> a proper three part episode. We are here. We got a prologue. We got three parts. We got. We got like some themes going. It's like classic Sky Talkers. <laughs> it just feels like we haven't done this in a while. And everything we've been doing, I am super proud of and super happy with. And actually, the Lego Star Wars Spectacular episode was a three-part episode, but I didn't realize it was a three-part episode <laughs> when we were recording it. I guess so it was, I didn't yeah. dictate it like a three-part episode, but we should have. But this time we're dictating this like a three-part episode because it is. <laughs> three-part episode. Bring it back. I miss our our structure. I miss it. I know. I, miss it. I know. I know. Yeah. And the reason why we're doing this is, first off, I think that we on this podcast truly don't talk enough about the two anthology movies because you really have to dedicate some time to like separate them from the Skywalker saga and decide to talk about them. But we're since we're entering the age of Andor, the Andor era, very, very soon, we thought it would be really good to revisit Rogue One. And Caitlin loves Rogue One. I also love Rogue One. I don't know why I said it like that. <laughs> this movie's amazing. I just know Caitlin really loves Rogue One when I just love it. You know what I mean? Okay. It's great. And and I'm happy. I know. I feel like I'm you just like digging up, myself like, into a hole. Don't which like is, that much. And it's not even true at all. Like I really love Rogue One. <laughs> Charlotte so, only like okay. like a little bit. Like she's really yeah. just here because of me. Let's be honest. It's not even true. This was my <laughs> I- episode idea. Okay. Anyway. All right. I love Rogue One. Caitlin loves Rogue One. We're here to talk about how much we love Rogue One. And one thing we love to do on Sky Talkers is talk about thing- things by theme. And we haven't really done it in a while. And we used to take one theme, one overarching theme that might seem a little unconventional to a story and apply it to the story itself and talk through it and see what we can discover about the story that we perhaps didn't before. When we approach something from a different theme, we take on a new lens into the way that we watch this movie, a movie that we have seen hundreds of times at this point, right? And that's something that is so fun. And I'm hoping that when we go through this and we can talk more about Rogue One, like it's been so long. I can't even remember the last time we talked about Rogue One on the show, like even individually. Honestly, it might have even been the episode that we did a million years ago about sacrifice, which I felt like we talked a lot about Rogue One in general. I feel like, I don't know, it feels like a long time ago. Haven't really listened to that in a while. But (laughs) uh, yeah, I think that I'm excited about this and perhaps this will be a format that we adapt later. Yeah, I'm super pumped. Rogue One has such a special place for Sky Talkers history, the lore of Sky Talkers, uh, because it really was kind of, (laughs) it really was Rogue One that really inspired us to start Sky Talkers, actually. So I think it's something that means a lot to us as a film. And it's something that, yeah, we kind of go for long stretches of time without talking about it, I feel like. It's kind of one of the only 
films. I think that we've done multiple separate episodes kind of dedicated to it specifically. Like, of course, we we are talking about like a film like Revenge of the Sith all the time, but I wouldn't say that we've had multiple soul Revenge of the Sith episodes in the same way that we actually have for Rogue One. This will be our third, I think, because we did the original one. We did another one in like 2018, right? We did Sacrifice. Anyway, we've, we're here to talk about Rogue One once again, and I'm super excited. And I'm actually really excited for this episode too, because we're doing something a little bit different with our themes, with our three parts. Uh, like Charlotte mentioned, usually when we do themed episodes, we take one big theme like sacrifice, concealment, hands-on language, uh, and we use that for the entire episode. But in this episode, we're actually taking three separate themes and we're going to devote one part of the episode to a different theme. So I know it kind of feels like Russian roulette a little bit, like which theme will come out the victor or (laughs) I don't know, our favorite one to talk about. But I'm kind of excited to kind of split split this episode up with three different parts or three different themes. I think that's that's kind of new for us. And I'm kind of excited to see how the conversation meanders. Yes. So we chose three sort of unconventional themes and things that I guess were are obvious and then a couple that aren't. So in part one, we're going to be talking about the theme of hate. In part two, we're going to be talking about the theme of trust. And then part three, we're going to be talking about redemption because we have to. So without further ado, <laughs> let's get started. So who talks first? You talk first? I talk first. Okay, welcome to part one, where we're talking all about the theme of hate, which is, I don't know, I was kind of excited to have this on the episode. We were thinking about this. <laughs> it feels bold. I know, feels- right? I'm like, hate. Part one, mm-hmm. hate. <laughs> when we were planning out the episode, we were having kind of a hard time coming up with a third part. We had had trust as a part and redemption as a part, but it was kind of difficult to think of a third part. And Charlotte came up with the idea of hate as a theme. And yeah, it felt a little spicy, felt a little different. And I don't know, I was kind of excited to talk about it. It was originally part three, but we decided that was probably too bit of a bummer to end the episode on part three. (laughs) So we moved it up into part one. (laughs) So we are talking about the theme of hate. So Charlotte, why don't you talk about what made you even suggest this in the first place? Yeah. So we had trust and redemption down and I felt like we had a lot to say in the future about our main protagonist, aka the good guys. And I wanted to kind of explore something about the movie that I feel like Rogue One actually takes on a darker tone, both in look and feel than other Star Wars movies in a way. And perhaps that is also in my head just based off of the way that Rogue One was even initially marketed before we even saw anything from the movie. Just the concept of it being like a war movie and things like that. When, of course, Star Wars is a war movie, but you you go, you all know what I mean. Okay. (laughs) I think with the concept of hate, I think we also on our show talk a lot about the dark side, evil, and things like that, but I don't think we specifically talk about hate. And I wanted to explore the concept and ask the question in Rogue One, do the good guys that I was referring to before hate? And with this story being about a singular goal, is part of the motivation for the rebellion hatred? And is that okay? What do you think? Oh, I think this is a really good question and hard to answer. But I think 
I think the obvious question is actually yes, they are fueled mm-hmm. by hate, but it's through this heroic lens because they're the good guys, right? So their hate is because of the empire is because the rebellion knows that what the empire is doing is awful. It's atrocious. It's, you know, it's it's terrible what they're doing across the galaxy. But I think what Rogue One really introduced into Star Wars in, in a really big way, especially at the time, were was this kind of this gray area. And I think we're hearing so much about this gray moral era area when it comes to uh, promotion for Andor and stuff. And of course, this was laid out in Rogue One. And I think we see this in so many of the characters like Cassian and what he's willing to do for the rebellion. You know, I what did he, what does he say at the end? You know, everything I did for the rebellion would be worthless if I didn't go with you, Jen. Some, something like that. I know that's not the quote, but <laughs> it's that sentiment. You know, and someone like Saw Gerrera too, who becomes an extremist, but is still operating from the place of hatred towards the empire, which I think is the same place that a lot of people in the rebellion are operating from as well, which is hatred for the rebellion, uh, for the empire. Sorry. (laughs) That was not the right way to say that, but hatred for the empire. I think a lot of people, that is their stance. And that's, that hate is what motivates them to actually give everything up to join the fight, to join the cause. It's because of that emotion, I would argue, maybe even more so than any other emotion that they feel. The fact of the matter is the empires, um, from what we see from the prequels, comes from power, like a central want for power, right? It's a power struggle always. And the empire is continuing to try to amass more and more power across the galaxy. So when we ask ourselves, is the rebellion fueled by hatred and is that okay, I think that that hate actually comes from the empire and the rebellion's own hatred for the empire is because of that lust for power, which I think it comes into play when we talk about the dynamics of the dark side. And I also think that something is really that we need to note in this conversation that we have about our characters in Rogue One is the fact that there's a sense of democratization that happens when we have a cast like Rogue One for the first time in film in Star Wars where we don't actually have a force user at the center of the story. It's not a Jedi story. And of course we have Baze and, and Chirrut, but it's different, right? They're different. They're different people than the Jedi. And they're very, they make the distinction that there's more to the Star Wars stories than just Jedi stories. So then we can remove that element of light side and good side. And we can talk about just what motivates the characters. And yeah, I think that just to go back to my original question of is part of the motivation for the rebellion hatred, it is. And I would argue that that hatred is perhaps what really drives Saw, like you said. Saw Gerrera, in the place that we see him in Rogue One, what the audience is supposed to take away from that portrayal is that he has been so fervently in his own mission that he um, has lost his way. And has like completely splintered away from the traditional rebellion that we know and and have seen in the original trilogy. And I think a lot of that has to do with him being somewhat blinded by his hatred of it all. Um, even though I think also as an audience member, we totally understand that um, his sense of justice is violent, but in a lot of ways, we understand it. 
And of course, that also comes from a sense of like understanding from his the different appearances from his character and things like that. But I think if we just look at Rogue One, I think that's what we're supposed to compare Saw to and Saw and his rebels to the rebels on Yavin 4 and see how they differ. And I think, I again, I would also argue that uh, that hatred that perhaps is uh, within the rebellion, and again, I think I'm allowing it, I think it's okay, is also where we are in this point in time isn't necessarily where the rebellion needs to be either. Like there's a lot of room for improvement and growth. And I feel like, again, there's a sense when you watch Rogue One that they don't have a real first amazing victory until A New Hope with Luke Skywalker. And I think that there's a sense of like, wow, the rebellion is really squabbling there, you know? Um, And they they can't agree on anything, can't agree on whether or not to trust Jin. And we'll get into that later. But yeah, I think that's really interesting because I would say that it's not until the rebellion all hates together (laughs) that they come together because it's really not until they realize the true extent of the Death Star of the Empire of what it can do that they're all kind of on the same page I would say Um, the Mm -hmm. stakes aren't there for all of them and we see that in that scene with Jin when you know what is she proposing uh when they're all kind of disagreeing like some of them are ready to go they're ready to make the stand and others for them it's it's not there's not enough of a reason yet it's only when they see just the fact that the the empire has a planet killer in the death star that they realize you know how serious it is i guess as a light way of putting it so i I hadn't really thought about it before until we, you know, started talking about it, about hate as a motivation or of hate as a way to describe the rebellion, which I think, I mean, I think hate can be a really powerful emotion. And I think it's necessary a lot of the times when it, especially when it comes to like social change and stuff like that. And I think that's part of what we, not part of, it is what we see with uh, the rebellion and the empire. So I think, I don't know, I, I'm really glad that we had this as the theme because, yeah, I hadn't really thought of it before. But I think once we start looking at, you know, a film like Rogue One that really is kind of exploring the moral ambiguity, it makes a lot of sense to kind of start thinking about the theme of hate as it relates to these characters. And even like comparing Saw and Mon Mothma, I think, is something that is really great to do because they're both... Like Saw Gerrera is completely fueled by hate, I think. But then that hate is like overtaken by paranoia and distrust and things like that. But then Mon Mothma is like, while they both have this similar hate for the Empire, Mon Mothma is like ruled by the council with the rebellion. You know what I mean? So then she's prohibited in a lot of ways from that emotion, that passionate response, right? Like hate is another form of passion too. And I think we talk about that a lot when it comes to the dark side. And that great scene, if you haven't rewatched the scene from Rebels of Sagarera confronting Mon Mothma through the hologram when he's like this massive projection over Mon Mothma, it's an incredible so scene. <laughs> so good. <laughs> that passion is a byproduct of hate or the other way around. I don't really know, but they're tied together for a reason. Like you have to have that kind of passion in order to do what these people are doing, which is put everything on the line in order to defeat the empire. 
I think that's so true. And a while back, I think you said something about how it's ironic how when they all come together to hate this like massive organization of the empire is when they find success. And I think that's sort of when they find belonging, which is a major theme in Rogue One as well. And actually throughout the entire beginning of that Disney era, the sense of belonging is so centered in these stories. But I think it's it's curious to think about like the concept of belonging, even from both the Empire side and and the Rebellion side, when it is centered on hating each other. I also think that we should probably shift our discussion about talking about hatred within the good guys and work towards the bad guys. So let's talk about Krennic and how his uh, what what fuels him and how does how does Krennic hate? I think Krennic's hate is really manifested in jealousy and paranoia because for him it's all everything he does is incredibly selfish because it's all about how he looks his station within the empire and people who get in his way are people that he hates so even someone like Tarkin even someone like Galen um, they're all people that are you know with the empire especially someone like Tarkin but it's someone that he hates because they're getting in the way. It's almost like someone like Tarkin and someone like Jin are kind of at the same level because they're both getting in Krennic's way of, you know, having this success that is impressive to the Empire or to uh, the Emperor so that Krennic gets promoted, recognized, whatever it is, whatever his true goal here is. But yeah, I think it it really manifests itself in yeah, jealousy and paranoia. And I think that this is the difference between the the empire and the rebellion, right? If we're talking about motivations of hate, right? And and why Sagarera kind of fits into that weird slot in the middle, I think. Because both of these, right, if we agree that both of these organizations are fueled by hate to a certain level, but they're not but the rebellion like isn't overrun by hate. And I think that's what we see through the whole last act with our heroes like Jin and Cassian and Bodhi and Baez and Chirrut. They're all not operating at that point from like they're operating from a place of hate because they hate the empire and they want to overcome it. Right. But they're not overcome by that hate. It becomes sacrifice. It becomes, uh, like you said, belonging and hope that what they're doing will actually have an impact. Whereas for Krennic, it never gets to that point because what what would he have to hope in through the empire? There's nothing for hope. There's nowhere that hope really lives within the empire. And so his hate is taken over by jealousy and paranoia and that eventually destroys him. Yeah, I think that's true. Popped into my head to think about the fact that whether or not Krennic is sort of self-loathing and I he don't I don't think he is at all actually I think he loves himself and wants to see himself alongside the other grand moths and he's not the concept of self-loathing is actually a really interesting one because if we talk about the concept of hate the self-loathing is self-hate so our, some of our characters actually begin from a place of self-loathing including Jin actually who really is in the lowest place when we meet her. And I think that she is so resentful of her past and her time spent with 
with Saw when she was a child when he, you know, she says that you dumped me. And so she she hates him in that moment. But I think that there's a sense of forgiveness there that that eventually eclipses that that hatred. But that sends Jin, I think, into this uh, this sense of um, when we when we meet her in adulthood after she uh, we see her as a child, I think she is in a prison camp and she's ready to break free, but she's like not ready to be among anyone else. And she says that not, nothing really matters if you don't look up, right? And I think that actually operates from a place of self-loathing and self-hatred. I don't know where Cassian stands in this conversation of self-loathing and self-hate. I don't think that he feels a sense of that at all, but I do feel like he feels some sense of shame when it comes to whether or not he has to carry out killing Galen Erso later. And uh, I think that is perhaps a pang of self-hate, but just understanding his role in all that and having to keep that from Jin. But ultimately, I think that the character that grows the most, of course, is our main protagonist, Jin Erso, who starts from a place of um, hatred of her own childhood and her life and where things have led her within the empire. And she feels like she can do nothing or what's the point really of doing anything to change it. I was going to say, so do you think Jin hated the empire and the rebellion equally? Or do um, she think? Do you think she was ultimately ambivalent towards them both before? I think there's probably one point where she hated the empire, just when she was a child underneath Saw. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think ultimately that came down to hating Saw for this is obviously just headcanon and things that I I guess have are, am remembering from Rebel Rising that amazing book, but. I think that came down again to hating all the situations that Saw put her in when she was just a child and also the fact that her parents left her um, and she felt like everyone was dead when, of course, we know that her father was not, but still, you know what I mean? I I honestly like don't think she really cares that much about either organization and doesn't feel like it's her place to get involved because whatever she was involved in before with Saw led her to a place that she was probably uncomfortable and didn't really see a means to an end, especially as she probably watched Saw get more and more paranoid and obsessive about the cause itself. Yeah, yeah. And even thinking about her telling Cassian and Mon Mothma that she likes to imagine that Galen is dead because it's easier that way Yeah, than perhaps like really thinking about what it is he is doing. And then just finally, I just want to note that as I think we started the conversation in talking about like the rebellion as an organization that perhaps is also fueled by hate, but I think it's worth noting and saying again as we round out this section that the empire is steeped in hatred and the hate f- that perhaps fuels the rebellion would not exist in the galaxy had it not be been for the hatred that comes from the, the fascist organization that is the empire. Right. Um, And I think that that I think when we talk about these things, I think we're talking about them sort of objectively and not in these senses of the weight that a word like hate actually has within the Star Wars universe when it comes to like the fact that we're so taught within this binary of light and dark side about hate leads to suffering, you know, things like that, that we're so droned into us. But I think it is very much worth saying that the Empire operates from a place of hate. And everything that the empire does, it's for power. And on an individual level, it's for hatred of everyone else who doesn't follow that. 
Yeah. And I think there is, right. I think what we're kind of getting at here is that there is righteous hatred and that is the rebellion. Yes. Mm-hmm. yes, absolutely. All right. Are we ready to move on to part two? Yes, that was fun. Let's go on to talk about trust. <laughs> okay. So welcome to part two where we're talking about the theme of trust. So in my opinion, when we talk about Rogue One and we talk about the story of Rogue One, it's impossible actually to talk about the story without talking about trust. And the word trust comes up actually often within the story itself, where to the point where I think we probably could have done a whole episode on the theme of trust. But uh, I think it's also it's worth starting the conversation by talking about the fact that there's almost a domino effect of people of trust and individual trust and hope I guess is another way to put this, um, from one person to the very last person in, in this movie. I think it really starts with the trust of Galen to Sagarera later to take care of his daughter to the very end with the trust of getting that that signal off of Scarif into Admiral Radis's hands and the plans over to Leia. All of that is from a chain of trust. People are trusted in order to carry out what seems like the impossible. One of the things I love when we do these themed episodes is like rewatching the films or the TV show, whatever it is, with this particular theme in mind, because that's not usually how I watch Star Wars, right? It's kind of like everything happening in my brain at once. But when, you know, I'm thinking about Rogue One specifically and the theme of trust, I don't know. It, it just, it puts things in new perspective, which I think is fun. And I think one of the things that really that I took away from this viewing that I, I hadn't necessarily on other viewings is that the whole film starts with Galen telling Jin to trust him and that anything he does is to protect her and that this ultimately turns out to be true and that Galen was telling Jin the truth. And I think that this is really important because this person that Jin had doubted for so long had probably, you know, as we know, went through so many complicated feelings about her father, wishing he was dead. It's easier that way. Feelings of abandonment, all of that stuff. His promise to her ended up being true. And I think that, like you said, Charlotte, with like that domino effect, that that kind of snowballed feeling, you know, once Jin realizes what Galen has done, that he really has always been thinking about her and, you know, not just blindly working for the Empire, that this, in a way, like, jumpstarts her passion for the rebellion, for, I wouldn't even say the rebellion, for destroying the Death Star. I would say that's her goal, is not necessarily the rebellion, but destroying the Death Star. But that also allows her to begin to trust other people like Cassian and Baez and Chirrut and, you know, Bodhi in the end. I would say that she kind of trusts those three more immediately. Uh, and it's really her relationship with Cassian and their trust and distrust in each other that I think we kind of track the most throughout the film. There's a real sense in this movie, I think, that starts with what I said in the beginning of a domino effect with 
Galen. And it it really is this sense of individual trust between two people. I mean, we talked about this before, about how Rogue One has like a limited amount of Jedi at the center of, or like four Caesars at the center of its story. It's not what it's about. It's about individuals carrying out an impossible task. And the fact of the matter is that Galen is part of that domino effect that I was referencing before, where he trusts someone who's ordinary um, in order to carry out what he thinks will save the galaxy ultimately. But it takes so many different people for that trust to extend to. And uh, it's that sort of like incredulous, like unbelievable feeling that like, wow, people actually did trust that. And that even comes up later when there's like actual shouting in the rebellion stage, right? Where uh, people are like, what is she proposing? (laughs) Just let the girl speak. And things like, (laughs) Uh, and you know how can we possibly believe her like this is a suicide mission we can't even believe her. we didn't even see the message she was in prison and her father was an imperial scientist and the message came from an imperial pilot how dare we trust this we shouldn't do this there's no reason why trust should be placed and yet if this movie is about an impossible mission that impossible mission is also the fact that they trusted every person who's against impossible odds to be trusted. That starts on an individual level with like magic removed. There's no force or anything like that. It is this story about people who are normal, who are able to carry out like one of like this to save the galaxy. And it's all has to do with like one person's belief in another person. Yeah, I would say this is really interesting to me because I would say the centerpiece of the film, right, is through the lens of trust, is that Jin and Cassian, their trust in each other is kind of the make it or break it of if this is going to be pulled off, right? And I think that the scene after uh, Idu is destroyed is really like where it all comes to a head, right? Where Jin and Cassian have this big argument where she accuses him of going up there to kill her father. And Cassian is very clear, you know, like, okay, well, did I? Did I do it? You know, it's like, it's. I love this argument. I think it's such a great scene. But to your point about the force and all of this and like non-force users, I think this is really interesting because Bayes and Chirrut and Chirrut specifically, he is the one who is also kind of dropping these nuggets about if we, the audience, should be trusting of Cassian. And I think to a certain extent, Jin too, because we saw from Jin in the beginning of the film that she is willing to take an opportunity if it means to escape, right? Like at the very beginning when they rescue her on... I don't even remember what planet that is now. And she tries to escape herself and is caught by K2. And then there are a couple of other instances where she thinks about running and doesn't. And it's only once the rebellion is like, we'll completely clear your name that she begrudgingly agrees to help. Right. But then Chirrut, you know, talks about talks to Baze about how he's going to follow Jin because her path is clear. And I think that for us, that builds a lot of sense of trust in viewing Jin as a heroic character. But then with Cassian, it's kind of murky because Chura is asking Baze in that scene, does he look like a killer? And Baze responds, no, he has the face of a friend. So as the audience, what are we supposed to do with that kind of knowledge about how we view Cassian as, you know, a kind of stereotypical good guy or bad guy? And then what I think of was such a great line from Chirrut, um, when he's talking to Jin about it, he says, the force moves darkly near a creature that's about to kill. 
And that like completely sets Jen off because she knows instantly what Cassian is planning to do. And so I think it's interesting to think about the fact that there are no Force users really, like by Jedi and Sith, but we do have our Force users, Churit and Baze, who are also kind of helping guide the audience or inform some of the audience's feelings about some of these characters and if we trust them. And I think even in that scene of on Eno of watching Cassian prepare to assassinate Galen, it was a big, is he going to do it? Is he not going to do it? Right? There's that tension there because we've seen him do it before. So I think that the trust between Jin and Cassian is kind of the most important trust that has to be built because I don't know. I think like it's so interesting to watch Cassian throughout this film because I think we can read a lot into his motivations in his interactions and relationship with Jin because throughout the entire film he's always very cognizant of her and like where she is and going back for her and he's always the one to like pull her out of a situation and not rescue her, but like he is rescuing her like a lot. Like when they leave Jetta, when they leave Edu, and um when everything he like he comes he's the one that saves her at the end on the tower with Krennic and everything like that. Even after the point that he doesn't necessarily have to, right? Like once Jin relays the message from Galen, she's kind of dispensable at that point from the rebellion standpoint, I would think. But Cassian believes in her trusts her something right makes him want to make sure she gets out of a situation alive and it's once he actually sees that she's still on that platform with galen that he abandons his plan to kill galen and now the plan has changed to make sure that the rebellion's fighters are called off because Jin is on that platform you know what i mean So I don't know. I thought that was kind of like, I agree, obviously, that like this film is not about force users, but I do think it's kind of interesting to think about Bayes and Chirrut's role as force users and what they convey to the audience about characters like Jin and Cassian. Totally. I would also add that on Edo, the rebellion didn't even trust that Cassian was going to be able to carry out his mission. And when the comms went down, they immediately sent in those fighters, bombed everything and got out of there and sort of ruined the whole thing, right? And I think that there was a sense of lack of trust there. And there's a an indicator for the sort of unevenness of how the rebellion operates. I would also say that per- part of what Cassian perhaps keeps going back to Jin about is I think that they are mirror reflections of each other. I feel like this is something that we're going to probably explore more when we dig into the character of Cassian in his television show and or, but I do feel like there's probably a sense of maybe that righteous hatred that uh, we were referring to before that is within Jin than Cassian used to have within himself as well. It like what is that trust there or lack of trust that sort of binds them and I think it's that that shared righteous hatred um f- from their past from who they were. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And one person that I think that we should probably talk about more is the fact that Saw is a character that we we said before that he displays an incredible amount of paranoia and disconnect from I guess the overall mission of the like organized rebellion that we see that Mon Mothma leads. But there's a sense of 
the fact that Saw absolutely trusts zero people. And you get that understanding from the fact that when Bodhi, who seems like the nicest guy ever, approaches <laughs> the castle. I mean, I think it needs to be said. There's no one that Better. is nicer in this story than Bodhi, right? That. There's he is this like heart of gold guy who probably that Galen really believed him in and inspired him to be more than the Imperial pilot that he was before. And the moment he gets to that castle that Saw is running, Saw sends him right to Borgullet, who doesn't allow for any sort of lies. So and you get the sense also that everyone has sort of been through the Boar Gullet, <laughs> right? We've uh, we made it through 2020. We've been through the Boar Gullet. Right. <laughs> that like you can't, you can not, because, because Saw trusts no one, he gives everyone to the Boar Gullet who uh, will make sure that you're not lying. And I, I think that is really interesting. This is actually a device in this story to prove that Saw is so paranoid that he trusts yeah. nobody. Yeah. Well, I think we kind of see that he's he's overtaken in a way by that hate and distrust in the same way that many people in the Empire and like Krennic are. Definitely. I think overall Rogue One is a very paranoid film. Paranoid is probably not the right word, but somewhere between paranoia and doubt is Rogue One as a tone, I think which I think serves it really well by the end, like I mentioned, when they're able to pull it off, even though it's left with this like somber sense of um, like bittersweet, I guess, over the fact that the characters that we spent time with um, didn't make it out, but their sacrifice is still worth something. The tone is is just like nothing we had ever had in Star Wars before. It's heavy. Yeah, yeah, it, it very much is. And I think we will be seeing more of that tone. Absolutely. Very excited. <laughs> okay, so let's move on to part three to talk about redemption. Listen, big deal. You got another problem. Women always figure out the truth. Always. Okay, welcome to part three where we're talking about redemption. And I kind of have to laugh because at the beginning of the episode, you said, Charlotte, we have three unconventional themes. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. It's just so funny. When I was reading it, I was like, yeah, this is so like us. Like, of course. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know. I'm sure we've talked about Rogue One and how it is a redemption story before I mentioned it, but maybe not in a long, long form sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. A very it unconventional theme for Star Wars, right? Redemption. Never. More like uncon even unconventional for Sky Talkers. Like we talk right. about redemption every five seconds. Right. Like <laughs> brand new. You've heard it here first. <laughs> first, yeah. <laughs> so of course we're gonna we have to talk about it today. It's our comfort zone. What can we say? All right, just let us have this. <laughs> yeah, and and remember, originally the last part of this episode was going to be the theme of hate. So I do think it's much more fitting to end the the episode in part three on the theme of redemption. And of course, right, this, as we're kind of joking about now, this is the theme of Star Wars, hope and redemption and belief for a better tomorrow, a better future. These are all the hallmarks of Star Wars. And it's fitting that Rogue One also has this theme, right? Because I think every Star Wars story does to a certain degree. But I think it's particularly interesting to think about it with Rogue One because even though we've kind of been talking a lot about trust and hate and like the links that people will go 
through for what they will do, like, you know, Cassian, uh, what he'll do for the rebellion, right? Things maybe he is ashamed of, something like that. I do think it's interesting to ask the question of like, what exactly do characters in Rogue One have to be redeemed for? You know, if we're comparing like a redemption story, like to someone like Ben Solo or to someone like Darth Vader, for example, or even someone like Callus, right, from Rebels, it feels like, like, is this the right term to use for Rogue One? Or does redemption have to always take on the definition that we give it when we're talking about a character like Ben Solo or Darth Vader? actually don't think it has a different meaning. I just think it has a different form. <laughs> so in in the Skywalker saga, when we talk about the things that we're talking about, and I think Callus is probably more part of the Rogue One sort of redemption that I'm thinking about versus a Darth Vader, Ben Solo type of story. We When we talk about Darth Vader and Ben Solo, we talk about the Force and we talk about what happens with the Force. It is sort of has a spiritual undertone. And I think that with Rogue One, we actually sort of remove that spiritual undertone and really talk more about like the personal redemption. And again, this is one of those things about the story of Rogue One that I think was so unique and interesting to the Star Wars world was this concept of individual everyday heroes and what this means and does it bring it closer to the audience because it is an individual everyday hero. I, ha- I just have to caveat by when I say like, does it bring it closer to the audience. I don't necessarily think that when we're talking about like the redemption of Darth Vader, that's no less uh, relatable to us than the sort of personal redemptions that happen in Rogue One. It's just it feels like more on a grander scale. There's more caveats. There's the force involved. There's a blue ghost of it all. Like there's a bunch of different things that we talk about when we talk about redemption when it comes to like Anakin and Ben Solo and things like that, that we don't, we're not going to be talking about with Jyn Erso say, with other characters, I guess. So let's get into the other characters. So for me, when I think about Rogue One, there's so many characters that have a really beautiful arc that ends in a redemption, forgiveness, just a nice change, I guess. I think the main one that I think we think about can can think about probably the most and have a lot to say about that is uh, Galen Erso is someone who I guess from what we know from the other material was in a scientist who was you know truly brought in um, against his will to work on the Death Star right with his other scientists and I guess this is one of those moments that like when he's when they're all standing next to each other on Edo um, with with Galen and the other scientists, you don't really feel like the other scientists are, um, you don't get a sense that like all of them are evil. You get the, you get a sense that they have been brought into this against their will and they're performing what they're best at against their will for the empire, which is why their murder right then and there feels like really unjust and um, abrupt and things like that, because we know that Galen is attempting to and the whole group i guess is atoning for the fact that they are creating a super weapon that will kill entire planets right and galen's whole mission that he has instilled the hope and the trust into all these other people that domino effect we were referring to um, is all part of making sure that that machine that he spent his life building is uh is destroyed. And so by the end, when we know that like one of the greatest moments in Star Wars, when Luke Skywalker destroys the Death Star, that is 
part of Galen's own redemption because he built it with a flaw. They all did. They built it with a flaw because they, it needed to be destroyed. And I think that's a, it's just a different kind of redemption, Caitlin, like than Anakin, than Ben. Yeah, I think that we often place such a heavy weight on a term like redemption that yes. these are like different situations in different scenarios, obviously. But I think the word that I kind of was circling back to a lot when thinking about redemption and like these personal relationships and stuff like that is forgiveness. I think that, and I think that redemption and forgiveness are terms that go very much hand in hand. But to me, forgiveness always feels like a, a smaller word, a, um, like a, it feels like a more personal word to me. And I think that kind of speaks to what you were saying about like redemption when we talk about it with characters like Ben Solo and Anakin is like on a very cosmic galactic level. And of course, like Galen and the Death Star is obviously on a galactic level too. But I think you guys probably understand the difference we're talking about here when it comes to like the cosmic force versus Galen or so making personal choices that do have ramifications in the, you know, broader galaxy and stuff like that but I think like the forgiveness between Galen or between Jin and Galen and like Jin realizing everything that her father has done throughout the years and I think that this goes back to our conversation about trust too of Galen telling her when she was a child to trust him and when she finally realizes that is all true this like feeling I would I ascribe to her of like forgiveness of the perhaps the feelings she herself felt about her father after all these years and forgiveness of kind of like the lives that both of them had to leave apart from each other and like Galen doing things he didn't want to do, Jin doing things that she didn't want to do when she was growing up with Saw and after she was with Saw, everything like that. It's kind of like a like a cleansing. Yeah. So like, again, I'm just like talking around the word redemption, but I think like it's worth it to kind of think of these other ways to think of the term too. Mm -hmm. um, I think that I just want to interrupt you because you said the word cleansing and I think it's worth discussing the fact that when Galen dies, it is in rain. pouring rain and also he's surrounded by fire. Yeah. And it it really is a physical cleansing and a sort of uh, rebirth in the fire as well yeah. Um, because it instills a whole new sense of hope for that entire group that was there on Edo. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a really good point. The other one I think that comes to mind the most for Rogue One is Cassian. And I would say for me that feels a lot like a personal redemption, a personal forgiveness between Cassian and himself, honestly. And again, I think that is kind of, we see that really through the events on Edo and then when he makes the decision to go with Jin to Scarif um, when he tells her, right, like everything I did for the rebellion, it has to be for something. And that conversation, that argument with Jin in the ship on Edu after her father dies of what he did and didn't do, the motivations he himself had at that time. And I think when we get to the end with them together on Scarif waiting, right, for the Death Star to come for their inevitable death, I think it's like yes, this was worth it. Like someone was up there listening and it's like a, I can go in peace kind of thing. I think there is that, I think they are sad, right? At the end, but I think they 
feel like it was worth it and there isn't that regret. And to me, when I think about those feelings, it must be because Cassian has let go of some of the regrets of the things he did in his past for the rebellion that maybe weren't always morally right and that he has had that personal redemption and forgiveness here in the end. I think that's so true. Uh, another character who has a sort of personal, f- I don't know if it's personal forgiveness, but there's a sense of saw at the end of his life, sort of almost uh the word that I'm going to use is not right, but um, sort of like that moment when he talks to Jin, there's a sense of like s- soberness, I guess, this like exactness that refers that he is able to in that moment trust Jin enough to show her that message and also let her escape and he sacrifices himself at the end. I wouldn't even say that Saw – sorry to interrupt. I wouldn't even say that it's a sacrifice because – It's not. It's not a sacrifice. You're right. It's that when you said sober, the other word I was thinking of is somber and Mm -hmm. like making that choice to stay, making that choice to not go on anymore, to to literally let go of it all. Yeah. I think in that moment, I also think about how and and whether or not the relationship between Saw and Jin was ever a father-daughter type relationship and how perhaps in that moment saw saw that he could forgive himself for putting Jin in situations that put her in danger and for, can, can for, forgive himself for dumping her as she uses the term and can give her this gift of her father from the past that can then inspire her to continue on. So I don't know, he he tells her to go in that moment even though she probably would have just stayed there and died there as well because she was so awestruck by seeing her father on the hologram, right? Yeah, yeah. I just think there's a sense of that I don't know if I am articulating enough, but Saw was a father figure in some sort to Jin, and there's a sort of trading in this gift that happens of Saw being able to show Galen to to her by hologram even in these last moments that I feel like is a sense of personal forgiveness for Saw for whatever happened between them that we don't really know about or know enough about in the confines of the movie, right? Yeah, there is like this finality to his yeah. conversation with her before either of them really know what's happening, even with the Death Star. And I think that, I don't know, it does feel like, in a way, Saw would have only made the choice to not go with Jin if it had, because it was Jin that was there, right? Like, if the Death Star had come and, like, Jin and Cassian weren't there at all, he would have left. But because he was able, like you said, to give Jin this this knowledge, this truth about her father and kind of closure between him and her it was like all right i i will run no more kind of thing but i wonder if he would have made that choice if Jin hadn't been there Mm -hmm. and i don't know if i think he would have yeah that's a good question i don't i don't know either i think that's also why saw is a really interesting character that keeps coming back into star wars because he's so complicated and has a lot of opinions and a lot of them are righteous and right from my perspective and I think that the way in which um, Star Wars continues to include him 
makes his background and his story just more all the more rich, I suppose. Yeah, I think we probably this means we need to do a full episode on the Onderon arc. Oh yeah. Okay, let's do it. I'm I'm down. <laughs> I, feel like, do it. I feel like there was a period of time on Sky Talkers where we were always talking about the Onderon arc. We I was always talking about the Onderon arc. It's long, you know. It's like five it's four episodes, episodes, right? It's four, yeah. It's four episodes, yeah. But it continues on. It's one it's when Clone Wars got chronological and not so segmented by the arcs that I think that's what's interesting also about it too is that if it really has ripple effects you know <laughs> yeah yeah I mean yeah it's such a good arc though like really mm-hmm. top tier and you all know I love Lux even though everyone else hates Lux <laughs> <laughs> it's fine <laughs> we, we like him here on the show <laughs> <laughs> yeah but if it does feel like especially since we know that saw was in the most recent Andor trailer too that mm-hmm. uh it might be a good idea to do an Andor on episode sounds good to me so anyway, let us know what you guys think well, there, is there anything else now that we've kind of wrapped it up with saw that we want to say about redemption not with saw i mean i just think that it is important to think about in many ways that the story of rogue one is a story of selflessness and sacrifice and hope it's also a story of redemption and like self-forgiveness i'm sure there's even more characters that we can think about that experience this like even Baze and Churret at the end of Churret's life Baze sort of forgives himself i think i don't know it, that's a, that's sort of one of my interpretations of that remark of how he says i'm one with the force the forces of me there's a sense of trust which is another theme we should have <laughs> talked about that with that of uh of the trust in the force there i guess um there there's a sense of this forgiveness over perhaps perhaps like lack of belief in that lapse period that's really touching yeah there's like this giving in isn't the right word but kind of um relinquishing the misgivings mm-hmm. or the anger that Bayes felt when their lifestyle had been upended by the empire and mm-hmm. yeah that moment feels like yeah a relinquishing of mm-hmm. all of in a way like the walls that he had held up it feels like against the force in those final moments for Chirrut and also for himself too I think mm-hmm. sad and sad very I'm sad <laughs> real sad Rogue One is uh such a good movie and it is uh when the credits start to roll I just sit there for like 10 minutes like sobbing type of movie for me and it and it has been like that since the beginning since we first saw it and it has not uh rub it has not changed at all like with repeat views and things like that like I'm still a mess when it comes to this movie and I think so much of it I was thinking about this when I was just watching it last night actually is the music actually and how well done the music is because I think what happens on the screen there's a lot of shots that feel kind of slow and just really well done like ILM was like killing it in this movie they always do but this one wow and I think there's a lot of slower shots that really kind of hammer home either the sound effects or the music. I don't know. It's so good. <laughs> and it really, to me, just to hammer the point home, oh, I think a lot of that emotion really stems from the brilliant score by Michael Giacchino oh, that yeah. came together in like 40 days, like yeah, zero time. <laughs> insane. Yeah, yeah, I think that there are like those scenes in Star Wars, you know, that every time you watch them, it feels like the very first time you watch them and I think that 
um, for me, that scene in Rogue One where the Death Star appears on Scarif, but it's like this beautiful shot, right, of like the sunset and then the like transparent Death Star, like it's still appearing out of hyperspace. And I just am always taken right back to the movie theater and thinking, oh, my God, like it like clicked for me what was going to happen in that moment. Right. And that there was no escape. Exactly. <sighs> and <laughs> every time I watch it, when we get to that part, it's just. Do you remember the gasp in the theater? Yeah. 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 It's like so crazy. Yeah. It was just. Yeah. It was insane. You you just it clicks and you keep thinking like there's a way there's a way but you also know that there isn't there's such a pause on that scene that i think is timed so well it's really yes. a pause for a gasp and then mm -hmm. you're moving on back into the thick of it really mm -hmm. <sighs> gosh yeah uh-huh <laughs> i love her one i'm very excited for the age of andor let's go yes. <laughs> there's only a couple more weeks i think it's like six weeks now yeah already yeah. Well, is there anything else we want to add in? No. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I had a lot of fun actually kind of going through these different themes for every part. I don't know. It was kind of like, I don't know, it felt like a test of our agility almost of switching <laughs> Yes. Switching tracks, right? Like going from hate to redemption is kind of it's a big switch. <laughs> or is it? Exactly. Exactly. That exactly. I'm afraid is another episode though. <laughs> but I hope you guys enjoyed this episode and I hope um you rewatch Rogue One as we gear up for Andor. Make sure to bring your tissue box and or a big glass of wine. As you know, you will need it. So I hope you guys enjoyed it. If you want to talk to us online, you can find us on Twitter at SkytalkersPod or our personal handles. Mine is at Caitlin Plusher. Charlotte's is at Crarity. We also have our Instagram website, skytalkers.com, our TikTok and our Facebook pages, all good places to find us. And if you haven't left us a review yet on Apple Podcasts, we would absolutely love it if you took a couple seconds to go and do that. It would mean a lot to us. And Spotify, too. If you've left us a review on Spotify, we super, super appreciate it. So thank you so much for those of you that have taken the time to do it. We really, really love you for it. Yes, we seriously do. And if you're interested in other ways to support our show, you can head on over to our Patreon and check out our different reward tiers there. Yes. And I want to say a huge thank you to these patrons. I ship all things. Danny, Megan, James, Nick, Christina, Rachel, Jessica, Emma, Kara, Allie, Matthew, Olivia, Justin, Benjamin, Molly, Jose, Nina, Alexa, Jedediah, and Brad. Thank you so much for supporting us. Yes. Thank you guys so much. And until next time, may the force be with you. May the force be with you. Thank you.